We are going to be diving into some stuff this morning, and so I hope you're ready. If you want to follow along on Uversion, you can do that. I do have a bunch of notes on Uversion. I don't have everything on there that I'm going to give you, and um, I just want you to be aware uh, that you're going to have to listen really, really fast. Does that make sense? Uh, because what I, I'm, I'm not going to give you a bunch of stuff that you probably don't already know, although there's some that you think you know that you may not, um, but I want to, today's kind of a contextual sermon, and that means I'm going to give you a con, the context for our next two weeks, but it speaks into what we are talking about, which is the afterlife, but not just the afterlife, really what we're talking about is eternal life, what does eternal life look like, and then not only what does eternal life look like, but we're going to re-examine heaven and hell. Now, we're not going to re-examine it. Um, in order that we change our understanding of heaven and hell. However, I will tell you that uh, many of our understandings of heaven and hell are actually not biblical. So we're going to be looking at these realities because they really our, our faith hinges on our understanding of the afterlife, of eternal life, of heaven and of hell, and, and you would probably agree with me that a lot of people that you know are believers are believers because they don't want to go where? To hell, right? Uh, that's a very compelling argument for a people of faith. Uh, follow Jesus or go to hell. You know, that's a, that's a compelling argument. And some have even said that that very theology, that very understanding of heaven uh, is actually uh, oppressive to people. But in order for us to really engage what does the Bible say about heaven and hell and kind of divorce ourselves from some of our uh, pre-existing notions of heaven and hell, we've got to understand the story that God's been telling along the way. And, and I'll just tell you that while the pandemic has been just a horrible thing for all of us, it has afforded some opportunities for me. Um, one of the opportunities is to just kind of disengage for a bit, disengage from programming, disengage from we've got another thing we got to do coming up this next week, and you know we're having children's ministry every week, and youth ministry every week, and worship every week, and small groups every week, and multiple small groups every week. You can really get kind of on a train that starts driving you to a destination, and at times you may think, I want off. I want off this train. And the pandemic has given us an opportunity to somewhat get off the train, and for me that means reevaluate what is it that we are as the church? Where are we going as the church? What are we about as the church? And I will be honest, some of this kind of stepping away has been good for me. Some of it has not been good for the church. And I'll tell you, I get, I have three types of Christian emails um, that have just spiked over the pandemic. You may have received some of these emails too, although some of them I'm probably getting because I'm a pastor and because someone wants to sell me something. But um, I'm getting a spike in three different types of emails. One is, um, if you are not doing online church right, your church will not be here at the end of the pandemic. <laughs> Call us, write a check, and we'll make sure you're here after the, the pandemic. We'll make sure you're set up and good to go. So I get a ton of those emails and have throughout this pandemic. I, another one I've gotten is the church is dying in the pandemic. Has anybody else gotten those? Maybe it's been on your news feed. The church is dying. The number of people who are tuning in has dropped. The number of people who are showing up in worship has dropped. The church is in a 
bad free fall. But guess what comes at the end of those emails? Call us. Write us a check. And we'll make sure your church is still here at the end of the pandemic. The third type of email I get, it does not actually come with a request to buy something. Um, it is more to kind of scare me into what is God doing because one of the things that we have a tendency to do is we, we use symbolism to try to understand kind of our reality, and, and we often seek meaning where there may or may not be meaning. And so the third type of email that has been spiking in my inbox has been a number of calls saying, this is the end times, Jesus is returning, the world is ending, it is all over. In fact, I got another one this week from an individual who said it was going to happen before the election. Oh, please, God, let it. But in case this particular individual gets it wrong, I think it's important for us to have a better understanding of eternal life, what's going to happen, what is heaven, what is hell, and how do we engage that today? And, and so our series about afterlife is not so much just about that we figure out what's going to happen when we die, because by the end of this series, you'll understand that's not what this is about. But it is more about how are we living that eternal life today. And so as we do this, one of the things that I keep thinking about, it keeps going through my head, and, and I keep praying about is I just... I have this overwhelming sense that God is saying to us as the church, if we're going to move forward, some of us have to move backwards. And by moving backwards, that means we need to re-engage some things we maybe have taken for granted, and we need to rethink about what the church is outside of the programming language that the church is often known for, but instead the relationship that we should be known for. Some of this that we're going to be talking about, and if we're going to have a, a kind of a correct understanding of the story that God has been telling, especially about um, eternal life, is there's a whole study of this, um, kind of about the way and more directly called eschatology. And eschatology is the study of end times. Um, not just the study of end times, but it's the study of what happens when we die, what happens to our souls, how does eternality figure into all of this, and that's part of what we're going to be doing. That's also not exactly what we're going to be doing. One of the um, realities that we hear so often about hell is that that is our driving force. But did you know that hell is one of the least talked about subjects in the Bible? Now, let me preface that by saying when you read the New Testament and you wonder why do they keep repeating themselves, one of the uh, tools in which they shared emphasis about something they wanted to talk about was they would repeat it. So interestingly, heaven is talked about 644 times in the Bible. Next slide. Hell, roughly 14 based on your translation because there are literally four words in the Bible that can be translated hell. But of the times in which most translate hell, that word is almost always the same. It's the word Gehenna, which means in the valley of Hinnon, which is actually a real geographic place outside of Jerusalem. 
It's a place where they burn their trash. It's a place when, if you remember our, our, our talk about the split kingdom, when we talked about uh, Love Walk Do and, and the time in which Micah was speaking and prophesying and, and preaching, uh, we talked about the, the northern and the southern kingdom. Well, the kingdom of Judah had some really terrible kings that would go to the valley of Hinnon or Gehenna, and they would actually burn their children to the god Moloch. And it was that description that talks about that burning of people and the weeping and gnashing of teeth, this dump that's literally on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Thirteen of the fourteen times it's talking about that place. Not this place that we read about in books or we see in movies or, or we look at Dante's Inferno and we imagine that hell is this place where everyone burns, perpetual tor- torment. Hell is almost every time talked about Gehenna, this literal place outside the city of Jerusalem. Interestingly, hell being talked about 14 times in the Bible, judgment is talked about 344 times in the Bible. Sin, 441 times. Death, 456 times. So if we're going to look at, well, the important things get emphasized over and over and over again, we look at these numbers and we think, whoa, is hell as big a deal as we sometimes make it? Now, you're not going to hear by the end of this series me say there is no hell. There, there is. There's, there's different types of hell as well. There's kind of the hell we create for ourselves, kind of the hell we find ourselves in based on our circumstances, but there's also plenty of teaching in the Bible that hell is a place where it is, there is some kind of, uh, of torture, it seems, going on, but it also will tell us that that place was not designed for us. We look at these numbers and we think, well, gosh, these are the things that are really important in Scripture. And, and, and if we kind of hang our hat on, on Christianity, on this decision to, for heaven or for hell, because a lot of us, our, our understanding of faith in Christianity is, I want to go to heaven when I die, and I don't want to go to hell when I die. It leaves us this really murky time between now and when we die, doesn't it? Interestingly, within the Bible, we Hell is talked about 14 times, but poverty is talked about over 2,000 times in the Bible. You know, another misunderstanding that we have about heaven and hell is, did, did you know that the Bible never says that we will go to heaven? Never says we will go to heaven. Which will throw most of our understandings of what heaven is about, kind of throws it out the door. What do you mean we're not going to go to heaven? And right now you're racing and you're thinking about all these verses that are going to talk about going to heaven. Interestingly, another thing that we attach to the afterlife is the rapture, in which the rapture we believe that what? Jesus is going to return and he's going to wipe us all out. He's going to take us to heaven and it's going to be the end of the world. But can you think of another place in scripture in which God says he will not ever destroy the world again? Think. Where? Noah and the rainbow. Now he didn't say, I will never again do this and cause the world to be destroyed except when Jesus comes back in the future. It doesn't say that. But there is a part of us that believes when we talk about the afterlife that that's exactly what's going to happen, but what if it's not what's going 
that happens. See, the, the point is, is we have to have a biblical understanding of the afterlife, of eternal life, of heaven, and of hell. And some of the things that we have kind of taken on as what these things mean may or may not be what the writers actually intended for us. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on heaven. Though there's a couple of things I want to share with you in just a bit because I want to kind of drive this point home and I, and I just want to show you a couple of places where the Bible doesn't say we're going to heaven but actually talks about heaven in a completely different way. Heaven is a place, by the way. It is a place. It's talked about as a place. It's just the Bible doesn't talk about us going to that place. Well, I do encourage you throughout this series... Because I may have already ruffled some feathers. Find your verse, send it to me. We'll talk about it. And we'll see what the Bible says about that thing. One of the problems with our understanding of heaven and this idea that if you can last, if you can hold out, if you can be good enough, then you can eventually go to heaven actually oppresses some people around the world. This very theology, in fact... This was written, and I, and I don't fully agree with what he's saying, but this was, this is, re, listen to this, written by Vladimir Lenin, who was one of the authors of communism. He hated religion, hated it. One of the reasons was because of this theology about heaven that says, if you can last, if you can hold out, you'll eventually get to go to where? This wonderful place where all your hopes and dreams that never have happened actually come true. We don't cry, we don't have sorrow, all the things that break us and we struggle because, gosh, this thing happened in my life and I've never been able to get over it and I'm just broken. It's like I'll be there and I'll be a new person and none of that will even be a thing. Interestingly, is also not really exactly a correct idea because when Jesus rose from the dead, what did he show? Thomas? He still had the wounds. So we don't really have a lot of indication about what life's going to look like in the afterlife. But we know that when Jesus returned after dying and was rose again, he still had wounds. What if we actually enter into this heaven existence with the same wounds that we carry in this world? I don't know if that's the case. I'm just saying... Perhaps our understanding is still a little different because some of the places when we pull it all together seems to contradict some of our ideas about what this is. I do believe heaven's a good thing. I do want to be uh, a part of heaven. I I do want all these things to be real in my life. I do believe they are real. But I, I want us to understand what they are because some people are missing it right now. Because heaven is not only a place, but it is an experience. It is a reality. It is where you are. It is not just where you are going. This is what... Vladimir Lenin said about heaven or religion. He says, Religion is one of the forms of spiritual oppression which everywhere weighs down heavily upon the masses of the people, overburdened by their perpetual work for others, (laughs) by want and isolation. In other words, you spend too much time worrying about other people. That's what he would say. I would not agree with that. I think that's a good thing. Impotence of the exploited classes in their struggle against the exploiters or religious leaders just as inevitably gives rise to the belief in a better life after death 
as impotence of the savage in his battle with nature gives rise to belief in God's devil's miracles and the like. In other words, we give up so much in the hopes that things will be better when we die. But those who live by the labor of others are taught by religion to practice charity while on earth, thus offering them a very cheap way of justifying their entire existence as exploiters and selling them at, a mo- at moderate price tickets to well-being in heaven. Religion is opium for the people. Religion is a sort of spiritual booze in which the slaves of capital or capitalism drown their human image, their demand for a life more or less worthy of man. So this interesting phrase or interesting thing that he's saying here is that religion has actually become an opium, a a way to, to deaden you to the world and what's going on in the world. And the idea of heaven is this place in which you have to go and do all these things for other people in the hopes that one day all this brokenness just disappears and everything you always hoped for you get in heaven. And he calls that cheap. And in some ways it is cheap. In some ways it is cheap because it's a nice, neat little way to talk about faith and then to ignore all the things that happen from a moment of salvation to the, to the moment of going to heaven. Like you can do anything you want. You can live any kind of life you want to live in this time, but eventually it's all going to be better. And we even have some that will take their strugglings and their sufferings and they will put them on their shoulders and they will say, look at all of my sufferings, how wonderful I'm suffering because when I get to heaven, I'm really going to be doubly blessed because I've suffered so severely in earth, and that is also not a biblical idea or concept of heaven. But it does at times seem like that would be a cheap way of viewing what God has been doing through all of history, all of eternity. We're going to be looking at a lot of what John has said. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote Revelation. And so he talked about throughout his writings, what does it look like to not only be the church, but to follow Jesus. And he gives us some of the the greatest, deepest uh, thinking, theology, and teaching on these subjects. He was not only a disciple, he was a church planner, he was a pastor. And one of the things he struggled with, and if you read through Revelation, you'll find that the letters that he writes to the churches are actually urging them, stop leaving the faith, come back. Stop believing and engaging with culture in ways that are destroying your faith. That's really what a lot of Revelation is about. He goes through and he says, you have left your first love. And so some of John's writings, especially later in his life, are of a pastor watching his church kind of die. Say, come back. You're missing it. This is what he said about heaven, and this is where actually if you'll read through about any other reference you can find in heaven, um, unless you unless you misread it, it's going to read something very similar to this. And it says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain any more, for their former things have passed away. And he who is seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Question, what is happening with heaven in this description from John? Are we going there? But instead, this new Jerusalem is coming from there to here, or some version of here, because he says there's a new heaven and a new earth. So, Heaven, our idea of going to heaven is not so much the way that John describes it as in heaven is actually coming here to where we are. Which makes no sense if we understand that heaven is this place in the sky and in the clouds in which we think that's where God lives, which many of us have that understanding even though the writers of Scripture did not have that understanding that God lived in the heavens. We get that. If we go all the way back and we begin to talk about creation. And in the beginning, there were the what? Heaven and the earth. And God lived where? The heavens. And we initially lived where? Somewhere. Garden of Eden, right? And yet in the Garden of Eden, this understanding of God's presence in which John says in chapter 21 of Revelation is that God, when when the new Jerusalem comes down, what does it say? God is going to dwell with us. He's going to be with us. And all those things that we hope for, that there's no sorrow and there's no tears and things are going to go well and death's going to be abolished, all those things happen, but it seems to be implying that's here, not there. That's all coming here. And the place that we find in Scripture where this happens, they're very slim that this kind of God it dwells with you. But it, there's only one other place other than in this return when New Jerusalem comes down. There's only one other place in which this actually uh, we actually talk about God being with us in this way, and that is in the Garden of Eden. This other place in which we look at our scriptures, and it says, hey, there's some rivers around the Garden of Eden that I recognize, so it must be on earth, but yet, once we were cast out of the Garden of Eden, no one can find it again. And in fact, there's an angel with a flaming sword that cuts you off. You can't even find it, and you would think that we could find anything in the world today, right? If there was this secret passageway to the Garden of Eden, surely we could pick it up on satellite. But instead, there's this weird sense of this place where we walked with God, we talked with God, and we experienced that. All of a sudden, that goes away, and God says, I cannot dwell with you in this way anymore. And that all happens because we made a choice to say, God, we want to do things our way. Right? Snake slithers in. Is he really said you shouldn't eat from that tree? Because really, he just doesn't want you to be like him. So don't accept what he says is good and evil. Eat from this tree, and you can decide for yourself what is good and evil. And that very act, that desire to live a life apart from God's 
not just rule, but God's instructions and God's love and care and mercy, his intention for us when we were created, that removes us from his presence in which they hide from him even. And God comes walking in the garden saying, Adam, Eve, where are you? Now that's kind of picked back up again uh, through Moses because Moses then gets the Ten Commandments and God re-engages And when he re-engages, he says, I want you to to set up a structure in which I'm actually going to dwell with you again, except I'm going to be in this structure, and and only the the purest of you can actually come and be in my presence in this structure. But other than that, I can't dwell with you the way I dwelled with you in the Garden of Eden. And so as they go through that process, which is really an interesting picture when you look at all the symbolism within the tabernacle, the tabernacle eventually becomes the temple. And in the temple, eventually, Jesus comes and he does away with the temple. It returns us to why many of us became believers in the first place. We read that in John chapter 3, where he says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world. So his son is sent into the world. This is the same idea. God's coming into kind of our domain. You can almost think of the earth as our domain and and the heavens as God's domain, which is why we sometimes think of the heavens as the sky. And we sometimes look to the sky and think that's where God lives, but that's not where God lives. But yet in some other realm of existence, that's where God is, that's where heaven is. God comes down, Jesus came, he sent his son into our place because we said we needed a place for us to be us. I needed to get me right before I could be with you, God. (laughs) I need to be me. You be you, I'll be me. He sent his son into that world, that place where we were to condemn, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And that is the great judgment that is coming. It is that we love something other than God more. That which is dark. This in the beginning kind of moment in which God plants us in this garden where there's this weird realm that we can't find anymore that we dwelled with God. And he's given us some jobs to do. To tend it, to keep it, to manage it, to oversee it, to reproduce and populate the world. God's given us some things that we are to do if we would have just followed him. This idea of our own place in which we can be apart from God and we can do our own thing, we still carry that with us today. And you would probably agree with me if you were really honest that there are times that we just think, God will not see this thing I'm doing. I'm going to do it even though I know I shouldn't. Nobody's watching. It's this idea that I have my, my space. He has his space. And I want to be in control of when our spaces intersect. That's not the way God works. 
John 3.16 not only gives us hope, but it also tells us that there is a coming judgment. And if that judgment is coming, how can he just wipe everything away? Transport us to this perfect place where there are no problems, no faults. We have no, nothing to be sorry about. How do we do that? Paul talks about this space that we create for ourselves that's apart from God as being the world of sin and death, that place of captivity in which we are in bondage that Jesus has come to set us free from, that, this place that we carved out and we built our own land and our own people and our own ways of doing things. Paul says that's the world of sin and death. And in that world is where we have some of the worst acts that have ever, well, that have ever happened in history. That's where the heart grows dark. That's where oppression grows. That's where sex trafficking is born. That's where pornography takes over. That's where we murder someone who has something that we want. We lie to get what we need. That's the world that we've carved out for ourselves. God is saying, but I desire to dwell with you. created the new normal, this problem of sin in this world. How do we fix this? Not the new normal that we talk about with a pandemic, but the new normal that accompanied the reality that sin separates us from dwelling with God. And so in order to bridge that gap, you needed to kill an animal. That's where animal sacrifices and the law comes in. And if someone breaks the law, something's got to die. You've got to kill it. And part of that was because you needed to see the consequence of sin actually it actually causes death. And the funny thing, there weren't enough animals for it to go around. <laughs> it's not really how it worked out, but that's true. How are we going to atone for all of our sins so that we can dwell with God again? The tabernacle becomes a, a, a key place for that in which the priest would come in and He'd have to purify himself, and he, he would once a year go into the Holy of Holies because that's where God dwelled. Interestingly, when Rome took over Jerusalem, they wanted to take over the temple, and when they walked into the temple, they said, we want to see where this God lives. Because they had heard the stories that their God lived in the temple or the tabernacle when they were wandering in the desert. So in this new normal, a priest once a year would come in and they would tie a rope around his ankle, have a bell on his garment. Because if you weren't totally purified, if you came into the presence of God, you would just die. Like sin cannot, can, cannot dwell in the same place that God dwells. And so if you had purified and done all, everything right and you were you know, pure before God based on not that you were sinless, but based on following all the traditional rites that you were supposed to do to cleanse yourself, you would go in. But if you did something wrong, you would die, and the bell wouldn't ring because nobody was moving. So they would drag you out by the rope. Next, has anybody else done all of the purification rites? Because you're next. So we see that God is now trying to dwell within us, but only when we are perfectly purified, which means for the rest of us, we're in trouble, right? We're in trouble with this new normal. In fact, 
if you are a student of the Old Testament, and you should be, because the Old Testament is just ripe with wonderful things to, to glean and to teach, but one of them is what happens when you constantly ignore God. And the nation of Israel reads like a roller coaster of with God against God, with God against God, with God against God. And it's just throughout that. And what we learn from that is that in this system, we still fail miserably. So God dwells with us in a different way. Jesus becomes flesh because the animal sacrifices weren't Enough. John 1, again John, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And he's talking about John the Baptist, not John the disciple there. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus dwelled with us in bodily form so that we can make God known because God is still seeking to dwell with us. Which we sometimes think that's heaven. Certainly not hell, which would mean there would be a place of God's creation in which God never visited, if that were true, by the way. God totally banished himself from hell, or it's this place beyond God's touch, neither of which we would say are biblical ideas of who God is. kind of messes with our thinking about heaven and hell in the way that we've kind of conjured it up in this world of I get what I want in the end which is a very American way of seeing the world, by the way. So to take care of the problem of our choice to define good and evil for ourselves, in which we constantly and consistently do and constantly and consistently get it wrong, and what God is trying to show us through the law, God can't just ignore our sin and transport us to heaven, which is the way some of us kind of view heaven. He is just and he has to deal with our sin. He has to deal with this problem that's keeping us from dwelling with him, which is why when we ignore sin, we are doing a terrible disservice to the person who is sinning because it is destroying their ability to dwell with God and it is setting themselves up for judgment. Now, we sometimes step in as the judge so that they don't have to see the judge, right? And yet still, this whole story is about God dwelling with his people. Not right versus wrong, although that certainly plays a part. This is all about restoring our ability to dwell with God. This is where we get the imagery that Jesus is a lamb, coming from the idea of the animal sacrifice. None of them were enough. John, again, verse Chapter 1, verse 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. 
And it is by his sacrifice that sin's punishment will finally be carried out or cared for so that we can dwell with God again. And we find through this that Jesus then, in this story from the beginning to the end, that Jesus breaks the cycle of life and death by dying and living again. Again, coming out with wounds still. You could argue, well, but he had been down to hell and not to heaven. When he gets to heaven, he's going to go through this great Epsom salt bath and the wounds are going to disappear as well as all the trauma of living in this world. We don't have any indication one way or the other what that's going to look like. But he does come back from the dead with his wounds, still breathing, heart still beating, even though it had already broken. He breaks this cycle. Mark chapter 16, we read this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and, and Solomon brought spices so that they may go in to anoint him. And the, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and there they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed, as any of us would be. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him just as he told you. So Jesus demonstrates, not only through Lazarus, but more powerfully by raising himself, that this cycle is broken. And so, when we talk about what is eternal life, Jesus changes that whole mindset that anyone before this time ever would have understood what God was doing so that he could dwell with us again. So what is eternal life according to Jesus? It's kind of our question for the day, and I'm not going to fully answer it today, but so what is eternal life according to Jesus? And John chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they go to heaven when they die. That's not what your version says? No. What does it say? They know you. Because God wants to dwell with us, for us to know him. Let's read that again. Verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent to dwell. So our idea of eternal life, of living forever, I am, and not in any way, there are plenty of places in Scripture that talk about the, the incorruptible soul and the, the reality in which we, uh, we have this ongoing life that lives forever. We do experience that within our lives. That is something we do find within the Bible. But in, in this place and in this description of what eternal life is, what he's saying is eternal life is knowing God. And if we're going to take anybody's word for it, we should take Jesus' word for it. 
this leads us to some problems. This is what I want to wrap up with. Problems and then a solution. Our problems with all of this is, okay, Jesus took our sin. God wants to dwell with us. Um, Jesus did all these things for us. Eternal life is knowing God. Why do I so often feel that God is absent? Why do I feel like I'm alone? And why don't we experience God more within our lives? So we don't have enough time to go into all of the possibilities of why this could be, but I do want to suggest two possibilities as to why we as believers believe all these things and believe rightly about all these things and yet still fail to experience God ourselves more fully. The easy answer would certainly be, well, because until this time of the new Jerusalem returning to the earth, we're not actually able to fully see God yet. That, that's a very biblical answer, but there are some other biblical answers as well. We read one of them in, in James chapter 4, and he starts talking about this pesky little thing called motives. And he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. That's the way of our space. That's because we get to define good and evil, and we get to go after what we want. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, which is a great verse if we only had that verse and no other context. That's where in the Pentecostal movement, the name it and claim it mindset comes. I really want a new car. God, you must give me a new car. And you could find scripture to back up that mentality if you took it out of context. God desires to give you the desires of your heart. Oh, I love that verse. Until you understand that he's talking about your desires being unified with his desires and not your own selfish desires instead. You can find places in Scripture to say lots of things, and this is one of the things that, one of the places where they point to is James chapter 4, verse 2. You cannot attain, you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. But what happens when you do ask and you still don't receive, which is one of the reasons that this name it and claim it faith theology that has been spread around the world eventually fails because I'm naming it and I'm claiming it and I'm not getting it. And they give up and they walk away. And, of course, who do they blame? Do they blame the false teacher? Of course not. They blame God, which is why the name it and claim it movement is such a damaging and terrible movement in our world today. Like it, which comes behind it is this teaching of destiny in which you can fulfill your destiny. Your destiny is to have eternal life, which based on what Jesus says is to know him. And yet there's this growing movement, this growing theology of destiny that says your destiny is to be successful and to be well-liked and to be a celebrity and to have influence and that's not what destiny is in Scripture. It's just the other side of the exact same coin. But he goes on, he says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, which really messes me up because now all my motives are in question. And then that makes you feel like I have to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out my motives. And I would say that would also be a correct biblical understanding of following Jesus. 
He goes on in verse 4 and says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So that's one possible reason why we don't experience God more that is not God's fault, but our own. We're seeking to use God still in our own mindset of our own definition of what is good and evil. We read one of the most frightening verses in Matthew 7 where Jesus seems to say the same thing. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. And if we're going to understand the kingdom of heaven as this place in the sky in which we go and live, in which we all have harps and Cupid, I don't know, bows and arrows, and we're going to shoot people that should fall in love with each other, and we're just going to sing and be happy and never have anything that goes wrong, would misunderstand if we didn't understand what the kingdom was about. And so now we have to understand the kingdom of heaven, not just the idea of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Were we not like the most awesomest of awesome super Christians in the world? We were just totally great about everything we did as a church. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like, oh, those cut to the heart, cuts to the chase. God, my motives sidetracked me. My motives are my motives. They're not God's. They're not his fault. And he fails to respond. Perhaps it is what we're seeking him to respond to. What often happens is that people then buy into this misrepresented gospel. They get discouraged. They give up. God doesn't behave the way he's supposed to based on what we have chosen to believe about him. He won't give us what we want. And so what do we do? We leave the faith and we declare God is not real and God is dead. And I would say many of the emails that I receive right now and through this pandemic and received before the pandemic the church is dying and people are leaving the church. I've got one statistic, the number of, of young people, those people that are 30 and under, that were attending the church at least sporadically before the pandemic, half of them are, have nothing to do with the church now. I, I, I read those as if the pandemic itself has caused our hearts to decay in the way they have. Not the, the pandemic. One of the reasons I think we have to reimagine what the church is going to look like, and if we're going to reimagine what the church is going to look like, then we have to actually go backwards, not forwards. When we go backwards, we begin to see what God is doing and what God is saying. Let me leave you with these questions, and, and we'll quit for the days I've gone over. What if eternal life is right now, not later? But if, you're, if you as a follower of Jesus are experiencing eternal life right now, not later. Is it a pearl of great price? Is it a treasure buried in the field? You'll sell everything so you can go have that treasure? Because that is what Jesus seems to be saying when he says this is eternal life to know God and the one he sent that dwelled in the flesh, died in the flesh, returned in the flesh to then ascend to heaven 
as something, spirit or flesh. Philippians 3, Paul says um, what we get wrong about heaven. His brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Talking about people who would say, I'm a believer. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Ho, ho, wait. So maybe there is a place we go to. Oh, wait. But then he says, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's actually saying here is we're still waiting. Jesus is in heaven, and we're still waiting for him to come back here to us, not us go to him, what Paul is saying. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. It's just him just crying out. Paul had the same problems John had, people abandoning the faith, abandoning the church, and just embracing the culture, which is one of the things I, one of the reasons I believe so many Christians have all of their hopes. Like the world's gonna end if Trump wins, and the world's gonna end if Biden wins. I mean that's the language that we're using. Christians, like, that's not biblical. They're not going to cause the end of the world. Like God told Noah, Noah I, I'll never allow the world to be destroyed like this again. Oh, wait! Did not see the 2020 election. That one got past me. I take back everything I said. That's one of the reasons we do it is because we trust and we pray, and God, but you're not fixing these problems. We're going to fix it ourselves. That's where we're at. But in heaven, that is the place from which we await a Savior to return to us. Here's what I would leave you with. That we need to live as if eternal life is ours right now. Not later, but it is ours right now that you are becoming a new creation. You're not just a new creation. Like, look at me in all of my glory. I've arrived. I am here. I am just the radiant glory of Christ incarnate in front of you. That's actually not what the Bible says happens to us. I will leave this to you as we seek to, to live out this eternal life, and then we're going to explore this more deeply in the next two weeks. Paul teaches this to the Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We would live for Christ. Verse 16, for now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, the worldly way in which we have constructed our space apart from God to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong, good and evil. We no longer regard people from that mindset because we understand truly all things are God's. And to dwell with God is way greater than having our own space to do what we want because that leads to just chaos and destruction. That's the world we live in. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, which is a little bit of a misrepresentation uh, of what is said in, in the original languages. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is becoming a new creation. The old has come, has passed away. Behold, the new is, has come or is coming. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is that part in which, like today, you look back at yesterday and go, I'm not doing all the terrible things I did yesterday. Like, I'm kinder today than I was. I'm not, like, as kind as somebody else that I know that's way kinder than me. But I am kinder than I was. And I'm, I'm generous. I'm, like, not as generous as these people that, that give away everything, but I'm more generous than I was those are good celebrating things in which one of the things I often hear God telling me is he never says, Mark, you've arrived, you've, you've done it. You, I, Jesus himself couldn't have, have accomplished what you've accomplished. This is wonderful. I, he never says that stuff. But at times he says, Mark, good job. Good job. Like, I mean, you weren't great, but you were better than you were. And I do think God speaks to us in that way. That's that new creation we're becoming. New creation. Verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's what I want to wrap up with. Eternal life is knowing God. Like that happens right now. That can, ha can happen right now. Sometimes we are still so enamored with our own space. And the, even the idea of dwelling with God still scares us in that we say, God, I just need my own space. Like, don't watch for a while. Like, I need, I need to set, like, a do not disturb from you for about a week while I go on spring break or fall break or I want to go, I want to go to this movie that you really would not want me to go to. But can we just do a do not disturb until it's over? And then I will be back and I will walk with you again. It will be wonderful. But I just need my space. That is the Eden story. God is saying, I want to dwell with you. And Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you would know him and the one whom he sent, which is Jesus, which was God incarnate dwelled with us again. We continue to read, especially Paul's teachings, because Paul gives us a lot of teachings, but just Jesus himself said, when I leave, I'm going to continue to dwell with you. Like, Jesus is coming, ushered in a new realm of dwelling with God because we receive what? Holy Spirit, who dwells within us. So, I know I'm, I'm, I may have created more questions than I answered them today. I would invite you to join me for the next two weeks. Um, next week we're going to talk about hell. It's going to be a rip-roaring time. We're going to love it, and, and we're going to just love each other and sing praises, and we're going to talk about hell. It's great. Um, really, we're going to be talking about what is the real, truly biblical understanding of what hell is. And then we're going to follow up with heaven. We're going to wrap up talking about heaven. This is all in hopes to form within us a foundation for where we're headed and to not just reimagine but to remember 
what the gospel story is really all about, which changes the way we see ourselves, changes the way we see God, and it changes the way we see the church. And I will tell you that God is still doing the same miraculous work he has always done, even if he has to wear a mask, right? <laughs> he's still doing the same miraculous work. I know he's not wearing a mask, but you get my point. Let us live an eternal life right now. Not just somewhere down the road. Thank you that you are regularly reminding us of what it means to just love you and know you and walk with you. God, it's just so overwhelming that of all of the mistakes we've made, you still want to dwell with us, not in a chamber, in a tent, or in a temple, or just in some reality outside of the world that we live in, but you choose to dwell with us here and with us right now. And I pray that we wouldn't wait to experience what you want us to fully experience today. I pray for those that are here today, and they, they are just asking these same questions. Why, why am I not experiencing God more? Why, why, I think, why are things not working out the way I think they're, they're supposed to? And, and, gosh, there's just no easy answer for that. But, Father, I pray that, that you would show them. Pray that you would reveal our motives. You would reveal what our true desires and goals are. And that you would show us what yours are and give us the courage and the flexibility to give up on our own desires and instead to embrace yours. Father, let us experience you fully every single day. In Jesus' name we pray.